This is a very significant day in the calendar of the church. This is Palm Sunday, and it's a significant day because it marks a remarkable transition in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look ahead this week to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and, and today, today is the first day of Holy Week when Jesus entered into Jerusalem unlike any time he ever had before. For the multitude of Jews uh, in that day, this is a day that has finally arrived. He's here. At last, we will be delivered. Now is the time of our salvation. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This was a day of great celebration. The King has come. Open your Bibles up if you haven't already to Luke chapter 19. And as you're doing that, to help us better maybe appreciate this momentous occasion in the ministry of our Lord. While you're turning there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read from a verse in chapter nine earlier in Luke's gospel where the word of God says in verse 51 that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus had been to Jerusalem a number of times during his life and ministry, but there is something obviously different about this final journey. And Luke, he, he leads us through, through these 10 chapters of this final journey of, of Christ right to the very point that we're going to look at this morning called the triumphal entry. See, Jesus was on a mission and we want to take this time today to look at how he comes and why he comes the way that he comes. And once we've done this, we want to consider how our hearts ought to be stirred as we respond to these things. Let's read together the passage in Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, went away, and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The first observation I want to draw out from here is this. When when Jesus comes, we see the king's unwavering commitment. When Jesus comes, we see the king's unwavering commitment. In verse 28, it says that he went on ahead. These four small words here. Listen, we we cannot miss this. It's not a small thing that Jesus was out in front leading the way. This is not just some inconsequential words here moving the story along. This needs to stir our hearts to see that Jesus was more determined. He was more decisive about going up to Jerusalem than anyone else had ever been decisive about anything ever. Think about a hero in a story who who knows what he needs to do. He he knows where he needs to go. And even though it's going to be incredibly difficult, and even though no one else in the story would ever be the one to do it, this hero gets up, he, he moves forward, he says, I'm going. And he begins to go. Can you picture that? I feel like I've seen it a hundred times, whether it's in movies or, or books. But listen, nothing else comes close to comparing to the commitment that Jesus has here to carry out the divine mission. Nothing could stop him from going to Jerusalem. He knew. He he knew all that awaited him there, and yet he went on ahead. His face dialed in to where he needed to go, set on the destination. I love what Isaiah 50, how it, how it prophesies beforehand the words, it foretells the words of the Christ, saying, I turned not backwards, I set my face like a flint. Nothing would get in his way. Nothing could move Jesus. The time has come, the king is moving in. I also love how the Gospel of Mark just adds some more color to this journey up to Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 10, Mark says that they were walking on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and he says this, he says, Jesus was walking ahead of them. And of the disciples, it says that they were amazed, and that those who followed were afraid. They don't understand exactly what's going on, but they understand enough to be astonished at what Jesus is doing. They know that in any normal sense, Jesus shouldn't be going anywhere near Jerusalem. The authorities wanted him dead, and yet here he is walking purposefully into the fire. This is unlike any commitment. This is unwavering commitment like we've never seen. 
And Jesus is the only one that knows what is truly happening. The disciples don't understand. The crowds don't understand. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they don't understand. Satan and his demons don't understand, but Jesus understands. And he was absolutely committed to accomplish the mission. Why? Why does he walk on ahead? Why does he set his face for Jerusalem? Because this is what he came to do. He knew full well what was going to happen to him. Look, look back just one chapter in, in Luke's gospel. Look at chapter 18, verse 31. For the third time, Jesus takes the twelve aside and he says to them, We're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. But Jesus understood. Jesus understood fully that a cross awaited him there. He understood that the physical suffering would be surpassed by the spiritual, inner spiritual suffering that he would experience as he bore the wrath of God for sin. It was for this reason that he came. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so he went ahead, going up to Jerusalem with unwavering commitment. And as he, as he comes, he comes on exactly his own terms. This leads to the second thing we want to see in his triumphal entry. Next, pay attention to this. When Jesus comes, we see the king's unparalleled control. The king's unparalleled control. As they approach the final leg of the journey, he tells his disciples to go into the village at hand and he says, look, you, you will find a colt there. And other scriptures tell us that this, this colt is a donkey. Specifically, he says, one that's never been ridden on before. It must be this way. It must be consecrated set apart for this specific holy purpose. He tells them about the conversation that they're going to have with the colt's owner. He tells them exactly what to say, that the Lord has need of it. Words that they would only come to truly understand the depths of in the days and weeks to come. At the end of verse 32, look at verse 32 back in Luke 19. It says, those who were sent, they went away and looked, they, they found it just as he had told them. And they had the exact conversation that he told them that they would have, and they brought it to him. Jesus was in complete control. Jesus plans this whole event, carefully coordinating every detail. He planned precisely when they would go up to Jerusalem. He planned exactly what would happen when, we got, when they got there. And he planned specifically how he would arrive. Listen, everything is going exactly 
according to how it's supposed to go. Nothing in this story just merely happens to happen. And only Jesus could do this. Only the sovereign Lord could orchestrate things in just this way. Jesus arranges that his royal procession would happen according to the predetermined plan of God as it had been revealed beforehand in the Scriptures. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, we see these words written beforehand. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, just as the scriptures say. Jesus knew this is exactly how it must happen, and he brings it to pass. Jesus says, It's time, go get the colt. And in doing this, he's identifying, make no mistake about this, he is identifying himself as the Messiah. Jesus, he's showing himself to be the long-awaited king who would deliver his people. Never before has Jesus arranged for this kind of royal attention. He's never allowed it. In fact, you you might remember after the feeding of the 5,000, when he he fed the multitudes with with the loaves and and the fish, how the crowds were coming to him and they were trying, they were intending by force to take him and make him king. And Jesus wouldn't let it happen. It wasn't the time. Now's the time. Because Jesus says it's the time. He's in complete control. Behold, he says, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Why does he come like this? Why does the king, not just of the Jews, but the king of the whole world, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, why does he come riding on a donkey? Do you see it? It's right there in the prophecy. Because he's humble. Because he's humble. He needed to come this way. The scriptures said he needed to come this way. He needed to come gentle and lowly. He needed to come bringing peace to the world. He comes not as a lion to conquer the enemy of Rome, but he comes as a lamb to conquer the enemy of sin. He he knows how he must come. He knows that he must come exactly in this way and he no longer restricts anyone even though they had a very misunderstood idea of, of what was actually going on. He, he no longer commands them to keep quiet about his true identity. This is what we must see next, that when Jesus comes, we see the king's unmistakable coronation He comes as king. There's 
There's no doubt here. There's no ambiguity at all. Verse 35 says that they brought the donkey to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus up on it. And as he rode along, they they threw their coats onto the road, paying homage to the king, looking to him as as their long-awaited savior. And they began to do so with great fanfare. I think sometimes we underappreciate just how large of a crowd this was, how much of a spectacle this triumphal entry was. In verse 37, it says that this was a a multitude. And and just to maybe put this into perspective, it's estimated that there were anywhere between 1 and 2 million Jews in and around Jerusalem at this time waiting to celebrate the Passover. And of these, there was a great throng developing around Jesus and his disciples. Some were catching up from behind, also going up to Jerusalem for the feast. Some were coming out of Bethany and Bethpage where Lazarus has just recently been raised by Jesus from the dead. In the Gospel of John, John tells us that many who had already made it into Jerusalem heard that the king was coming and they went back out of the city to meet him there because they knew that the king was in procession and they wanted to be a part of it. This was no medium-sized crowd. In fact, Uh, The Pharisees, upon observing all that was going on here, they remarked to one another, they said, look, the whole world has gone after him. One scholar that I read this week said that there could have been upwards of 100,000 people lining the path as Jesus made his triumphal procession. All this to say, this was a massive coronation ceremony and listen to what the crowd is saying look at verse 37 with me it says as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and Glory in the highest. They're praising God above and they're declaring the words of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. In Psalm 118, we have one of the most familiar psalms to the Jews. This is a messianic psalm, a psalm of salvation that Philip read from this morning. And make no mistake about it, they are identifying Jesus here as the promised King who has finally come. In Psalm 118, verse 25, we read these words, Save us, save us, we pray, O Lord. This is where we get the the word Hosanna. They're shouting out, Hosanna. Save us, Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And the psalmist says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're saying, this is the king. Blessed is the king who has come. And as they call out these words, we know 
that there's much more to the story, don't we? There's a few more words that we might use to further describe what's going on here in this coronation. First, to the religious leaders, everything that's going on here, all all the praise, the, the idea that Jesus, this Jesus on this donkey, was the fulfillment of Scripture's messianic promises, the idea that Jesus would allow these things to be done to him and and said about him, the idea that the crowds, these massive crowds, would be hailing him as the king of the Jews, all of this was completely unacceptable. It was unacceptable. They're they're outraged. And they, they say to him in verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're treating you like you're the one. Tell them to stop. And yet Jesus, Jesus answers them with such confidence. Basically, he says to them, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know who I am. You don't understand God's kingdom plan. You, you, you will not and you cannot see that your king has come. And by the way, even if they were to stop, nothing can stop God's plan. He says, I I tell you, even if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And and this may be just Jesus saying, look, all of creation will praise me as the king of the universe. But I think it goes deeper than that when he refers to these stones crying out. And in just a little while, Jesus is going to tell them very soon, actually, in the very next paragraph, we read of how Jesus points to the temple and he tells them soon all of this will come crumbling down and and the very stones of your system your religious system that you put your hope in will bear testimony against you that you missed the day that your king had come you didn't acknowledge your king To them, it was unacceptable that the king would come in this way. Furthermore, we could see in another sense, going along with this, the description of the coronation is unimpressive. I mean, he's he's riding on on a donkey, like a humble servant. He wears no royal robe. He, He has no royal crown. Really, there's no imposing accompaniment. There's, there's no army. There, there's no marching band. They say, look at you. You're no king. But this is just the way that the Lord intended it. His coming in this way, on one hand, makes it unmistakable unmistakably clear that he is the king and on the other hand it makes it clear he's not the kind of king that they thought at least not yet they were expecting a conquering king a delivering king an everlasting king and Jesus would be all of these things but first he must be a humble king 
a lowly king. He must come as a king who would die for his people. And in this way, the king's coronation is unfinished. It's unfinished. And Jesus clearly says as much himself later on this week. After, after he had ridden as king into Jerusalem and they had cried out that the king was here. They had, they had cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then after this, Jesus, we see in Matthew's account of all of this, that Jesus tells them, listen, you will not see me again. Until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is saying, look, what, what happened here? That wasn't it. It was kind of it, but it wasn't it. It was a preview. This, this coronation points us to the greater coronation day coming when all the visions of the prophets will be fully realized. When as the prophet Daniel said, behold, the clouds of heaven will open. There will come one like a son of man and he will come and dominion will be given to him. Glory and a kingdom will be given to him that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now if you turn forward to Luke chapter 21, we'll see Jesus looking back to this very prophecy and agreeing that this coming coronation will indeed come at its appointed time. In verse 25, Jesus says, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, listen, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. There is a greater coronation coming. One more place, John chapter, or sorry, John in Revelation chapter 19. He describes this in a vision given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. John 19 verse 11, he says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. You see that? No longer humble and riding on a donkey. But he comes in power. Riding on a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth 
comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the great coronation day. Listen, the king has come, and he will come again. He will come again in glory, but first he must come humble and mounted on a donkey. He must come to rescue his people from their sins. Now, how should our hearts be stirred by all of this? How should we respond? To what we're seeing in the Word of God this morning, I want to offer four ways. The first is this, embrace the saving King. Embrace the saving King. The the King has come to give His life as a payment for sin. The King, not just of the Jews, Look in, in Zechariah chapter 9. It says that the king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he. And, and look, you might be tempted to read or hear this story of this man who came with great fanfare to the Jews and think, well, what does this have to do with me? But in the very next verse, The prophet Zechariah, he says that this king who comes will speak peace to the nations. He says that his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. There is not one place where King Jesus does not exercise his rule. There's not a people that is outside of the kingship of Jesus. And he came, and he came offering salvation to all who would come to him. Have you come to him? The king has come. Have you come? Have you come to the king for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you come acknowledging that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the the one who, who came from heaven down to earth as a servant, who went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin, to, who bore the wrath of God in your place so that you could have forgiveness and everlasting life with Him. Listen, you can come right now. You can come at this very moment. You can come to Jesus and He will not cast you out The Word of God says that He will turn no one away that seeks Him. If you don't know Christ, see the words of of His Scripture this morning. See that He is the King of the world who has come and who is coming again. Listen, for some, it is very, very possible, as we've seen this morning, to have an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ, but to not truly know Him. To know facts about Jesus, 
to even be extremely intrigued by the things that he said and did. It's possible to sing songs that are rooted in Scripture, to think that you're, you're singing songs from a heart that truly knows Jesus Christ, but we see it's possible to, to not know Him. This, this, this multitude of people, they, they praise God, did you see, for the mighty works that they had seen. They had missed the whole point of the King's coming. The mighty works were, were meant to testify that, that this was the King of the world, the Son of God. The one that came to die a humble death. And yet when He went to the cross, almost all turned away from Him. They said this was not the kind of King we were expecting and this is not the kind of King that we, we thought was going to come to deliver us. They, they completely misunderstood their need for a Savior. That's what happened. Right? They didn't see their own sinfulness. They, they thought being involved in some kind of religious ceremony, in some kind of religious group, meant they belonged to the King. And yet they didn't truly bow the knee. They did not embrace Him as a saving King. We must embrace Him as saving King. We also must trust Him as the Sovereign King. Trust Him as the Sovereign King. We, we see in this account that Jesus is in control, complete control of every second of His life. Numerous times, His enemies wanted to kill Him. The crowds and the disciples, they, they wanted to hurry forward His kingship and His kingdom. But we see that He alone is sovereign over all. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, He says. And kind of in an um, ironic sort of amusement, the chief priest and the elders of the people, having seen His triumphal entry, having seen the fanfare, having seen him um, take the name of king. They see everything that's going on and they say, we've got to kill him. We have to kill him now, but not during the feast. And Jesus says, no, you're going to do it during the feast. Jesus is in complete control of everything. Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room, he says, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I will usher in my kingdom. Don't worry. Trust me. In my perfect timing, that day will come. And until that day comes, keep your faith in me. He perfectly ruled over every second of his life and he is perfectly ruling over every second of our lives. Next, let me offer this to you. Follow the suffering king. 
Follow the suffering king. This is not the main point of the text, but it's no doubt a a very important application. Jesus, although the rightful ruler of the world, he suffered according to the plan and purpose of God. Jesus was fully submitted to the will of God. And he's an example for us. He's, He's not an example. He's the example for us of the biblical pattern that, that glory follows suffering. In his commitment to go to Jerusalem to lay down his life, this, this ought to spur us on to resolve to do God's will no matter what the cost. we said this before, m- most of us want to avoid any kind of suffering at, at any cost. And yet, over and over again in God's Word, we're called to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Church, be faithful in this. Look to Jesus and be faithful to follow the will of God in your life, even when it's hard. Follow our suffering King. And then finally, and this is the preeminent response to all that we've seen this morning. Praise the awesome King. Praise the name of Jesus, the King of all creation. Pursue the awe and wonder of who Jesus is and and what He came to do. Like the disciples, be amazed. Be astonished at what's happening in this this passage and what is, is coming in this week, this holy week ahead. As the King of the world marches forward to the cross, as he's mocked, as, as, they put, as, as they put that robe on him, as they say, oh, you think you're a king, huh? As they twist that, that crown of thorns and they press it into his head, as they put him on that tree, as the darkness covers the land, as he bows his head and says, it is finished, be amazed at what Christ has come to do. Praise the awesome King for His unwavering commitment to come for the salvation of your soul. Praise Him for His unparalleled control in His life and and over redemptive history and over your life and your salvation promises. Praise the awesome King that He came as King and He will come again as conquering King to deliver once and for all his people. Praise the awesome King that one day the clouds will open up. He will come in the clouds and kings and kingdoms will bow down and every knee will bow down before Him and nothing can stop the Lord Almighty. Praise His awesome name.
Father God, we are arrested by the truths that you have given to us in your word. We look back at the history of our, our Savior and his redemption that he purchased for us and how he came as the king of the world, not the king that they would have expected, but the king that had to come. He had to come in this way. He had to bring about his own death in order for us to be saved. Let us praise his awesome name. God, we pray that that you would stir us even now as we sing in response to these things. God, would you help us by the power of your spirit to praise the name of Jesus Christ in a worthy manner. And all God's people said, Amen.